0: It's July 19th, 2021, and I'm here with Matt McGregor to talk about the week's acquisition headlines. So the first one we got, Biden to nominate defense industry expert Andrew Hunter as Air Force acquisition. and this is from the Air Force Times, quote, Hunter landed the nomination and this seems to be the opinion, landed the nomination because of his past work with Frank Kendall, the former Pentagon Acquisition Chief, who is Biden's pick for Air Force Secretary and the and the qualifications he's garnered in and out of government. So Andrew Hunter was the head there at the defense industries group in CSIS. Before that was the joint acquisition, joint rapid acquisition cell head and a longtime staffer. So I'm pretty stoked about this pick. I think people have actually been expecting it. So it wasn't too big of a surprise, but I'm glad it actually came through. And it seems that this is the the bonus that we got since Mike Brown got pulled out from ANS last week. So Anyway, good to good to see. I think it's a good pick. Hard to fill rope or shoes, but I think Andrew will do a great job.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right that he was anticipated to some extent. He's been on the scene for a while with with CSIS and he's written on a slew of important topics, not just tech, not just acquisition, but even just looking broader at geopolitical trends and things like that. So yeah, I think he's I think he's a good pick. I think there's a little always a little bit of a fear that. Kendall pushes him to bring back better buying power and things that maybe are a little dated for where we want to go in the future because Kendall's focus when he was undersecretary for at l was all about affordability. I think everyone has accepted now that it's less about affordability and more about getting the innovation we need and getting it, getting it filled in a timely fashion to stay relevant. So I think we're all hoping that Frank Kendall sees that. and and that he allows Andrew Hunter to do the things he's been writing about for the last last decade.
0: Yeah, I think that was well put. I guess that was also some of my fear, but also since it's Andrew Hunter, perhaps Fred and Kendall won't be so domineering in the acquisition slot because he'll have trust with the guy working there. And definitely those papers like software-defined, hardware-based systems and what that means for defense acquisition, I thought were Basically right on point. So I think uh, it's good things to come in the Air Force and sticking in the Air Force land, but really Space Force investment in space companies record 4.5 billion in the second quarter report says from CMDC. Quote, this quarter surge was driven by mega rounds from companies like OneWeb, which raised over 1 billion, and Relativity Space, which brought in 650 million. Two spacs closed with mergers, and uh, space companies began trading AST Space Mobile and Astra with the deals raising hundreds of millions in capital for each venture. So the SPACs, of course, are special, I forget what the P stands for, portfolio companies, access companies, where they basically just, like you have a company that is a holding company that will essentially look to buy a a private company that needs a bunch of capital so that the company doesn't IPO, but essentially it's IPOing. And so they can get capital faster before deploying a product. Anyway, 4.5 billion in the second quarter, it's a lot. I think it was just $9 9 billion overall last year so it's if this pace keeps up you might be doubling um, investment in space companies and when you look at it relative to the space force's budget in FY21 the space force total was 15.4 billion and that includes operations and maintenance or 3.85 billion on a quarterly basis so private investment is now outpacing you know space force investment <laughs> in space technologies so That's an interesting kind of flip that's just starting to occur, and it seems to make sense that the Space Force folks have been pretty committed to this concept of dual-use technologies in space.
1: Yeah, I wish in some ways they were more interested in it, but I think the stand-up of the commercial space office and expanding beyond just MILSATCOM into some of the other areas is, yeah, it's hopefully a sign of, of good things to come. Yeah, I, I looked up some stats on the on SPACs, and which I think are special purpose acquisition companies. Which there you go. I think, and they do have a two year lifespan. So there, I think there was like a lesson learned from when these things were created back in the '80s that they shouldn't last forever because then they become like these like slush funds or low value penny stock kind of entities, and they become bubbles. But yeah, in 2020, uh, Harvard Business Review was saying that. SPACs accounted for more than 50% of newly publicly li- publicly listed us companies. So they're definitely like, it's not just the space industry. It's definitely broader, but, space has uh, a lot of private money in it. And I think DoD needs to take better advantage of it. Looking at some of the details of this particular one, they were talking about how it was like infrastructure distribution and application. And some of the ones, some of the commercial companies that were in that more distribution and application ones, which are really purely commercial, were ones that were about like broadband networks for mobile phones and other ones that were space services for global communication, earth observation, weather monitoring, navigation, surveillance. So really broad, the one company, Astrospace, has like tentacles into comms, earth observation, weather monitoring, navigation, surveillance. So it's like pretty much like the entire space mission there. But uh, yeah, so this will be interesting to watch and see where it goes.
0: Yeah, definitely. Those EV tolls are another one where we have, I think we're seeing a lot of specs, And I guess that's interesting overall, you know, are we in an era of irrational exuberance? I like the, someone on tour (laughs) who was actually commenting on this is, man, this is, this looks really speculative. What's going to be there. And I guess the point is, we don't really know what the total addressable market is of space, just like people didn't know what the total addressable market of the internet was back in the 90s. And so there's all this speculation, but stuff gets built out. Things are going to bun- like fail, like the dot-com boot, like bust. And then what What comes out on the other side that lay the foundations and the infrastructure for the real kind of like regeneration after that. If it is a bubble, then so be it. Maybe there's good things that come out of it that otherwise wouldn't have happened, but I'm a fan of the Carlotta Perez kind of theory there. Yeah,
1: I think you're right. I read some article about that. Even with like SpaceX doing as much good stuff as they're doing, where where Elon Musk is going to make his real money is with Starlink. That's going to be the that's going to be the long term revenue generator over time, and SpaceX almost just be like a a hobby. Yeah,
0: it's amazing how they're learning to produce like satellites there, because it was just like they they had the launch cost, so they could they have like an advantage on that, just getting a bunch of stuff up there. But they're killing it on the production sequence there of the Starlink. So. We'll see how that turns out. And maybe it will. Yeah. I don't think going to Mars is never going to pay the bills for other things. Like the other things are going to pay the bills for going to Mars.
1: And until you, yeah, until you enlist like a ton of people from earth that just feel like they need to start a whole new civilization or something. I don't, I don't feel like we're there yet, but Maybe if the coast keep flooding, maybe
0: people change. Next one we got Kessel Run delivers chaos engineering to Black Pearl from Kessel Run itself. Quote, Kessel Run is the first software development unit within the DoD to implement chaos engineering and are employing it as part of their day two operations. They stood up a team, Bowcaster, to implement those practices in 2019 in order to continuously strengthen the various applications from potential attacks from adversaries to do this. Kessel Run uses chaos engineering to continuously attack its own applications and identify potential weak points within its own systems. So this is something that I think Netflix has been pretty famous for in terms of just using Chaos Monkey to expose failure modes in their system so that they can preemptively take care of that before they have a surge or something that goes wrong. This kind of thing, the MIT Lincoln Labs group, and I talked to Trey Her recently about it, they definitely have been saying we need to do it in DoD. So it's good to see Kessel Run here at the edge, experimenting, trying new things out and taking it over to Black Pearl as well over at the Navy, which is like the platform one of of the Navy. It's good to see the, uh, the kind of collaboration going on as well.
1: Yeah, no, it's good. It is funny. It's one of those things where it clearly demonstrates just like how the commercial sector and DoD, like what pace they're on, like Netflix was doing this successfully in like 2011 and 10 years later, DoD actually starts like, huh, this chaos engineering thing. I wonder what this is about. Even though it's like almost tailor-made, if you think about it, it's almost like tailor-made for DoD. Oh yeah. What could an enemy do? What if they took down all of the servers or access to servers here. How would that impact our ability of warfighters to get the data? Or how, what if they like disable these things, these controls in the system, you can think about all the scenarios that like might happen in a hacking situation, or if you're like being jammed or something like that. So yeah. Chaos engineering, I feel like maybe we're on the forefront for DoD. And maybe we should have been doing this ten years ago when when uh, Netflix was doing it. But yeah, lots of application, lots of lots of different scenarios you could see where this would be really useful. I Hope we continue this trend, and it's not just Kessel Run and Black Pearl doing it, but every program.
0: Yeah, I was just looking up. Where you were you aware of this day two operations term? It's where the system generates an outcome for the organization, and where you through pain and continuously improving not just your application, but the way you operate it in production environments. Interesting. There's a whole lingo around that as well. Uh, So the next one we got, DoD official testify on fixed-wing tactical training aircraft programs from the DoD. Simply put, we cannot determine the system, the F-35s, combat credibility, nor thoroughly prepare our warfighters if our test and training capabilities are not kept up to date, Richard O'Toole from Director Operational Test and Evaluation said. So that was one interesting thing. I think uh, Block 4 is probably the first combat capable aircraft to my knowledge, but not really sure where they are in that do you have a kind of an update and how they're rolling that out and testing it?
1: Yeah Block 4 is early. Still I think it, it took a long time. For a long time Congress didn't think that uh, I think the f35 program was trying to start F- uh, Block 4 much earlier, but because it hadn't delivered Block 3f and, and even 2B for the Marine Corps, they didn't really want. F-35 to step out too far. I didn't believe it could do it. So now I think they're a little behind. They're playing catch-up. Block 4, I would argue, is probably, it's like a next evolution, right? It's not just an update. It's pretty revolutionary in terms of some of the additional capabilities that come online, some of the additional weapons that are integrated. So it's a substantial, it's a substantial improvement. And so there's a lot of software there. I think they're right to be skeptical. And I'm not sure that I love this idea of moving to one of the other things that, that was in that article was about them moving from six-month to 12-month deliveries. Yeah. Now that's the UOT's perception. I'd be curious to hear the JPOs, if the JPO actually agrees with that's their plan. But yeah, if they actually are moving from six-month to 12-month deliveries to get better, understand the deficiencies and make it more stable, that's not a best practice that I would love to see them done. I'd rather see them do block four in chunks, do the tech refresh three that they need to do to get the hardware up to date and then figure out what what sensors, what other pieces need to be updated, get that all in place. And then you can just build on the software piece and, and add that capability over time. But 12 month delivery cycles, I would hope that they could do a little bit faster than that. But it sounds like that might be where they're going. And yeah, definitely they need to get going on, on block four because that's pretty critical. And it's also the driver, the other piece of this, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later, is this is also the reason why a lot of the vendor, a lot of the uh, other partners, the international partners and the Navy have been holding back on increasing the production rate because they want block four to be part of that. They don't want to have to do all those upgrades after the fact because it it won't be a simple, it won't be a simple upgrade. It'll probably require some type of works.
0: Yeah, I don't know where I heard the number $10 million it came from, but yeah. that might be around the number. Here's another quote from that article from CAPE which will be doing the business case review. The Digital Century Digital Century Series business case review should be completed in August, and I expect to send it to you shortly thereafter. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't know what kind of details we're actually going to hear, but what really comes out of the Digital Century Series is like the follow-on or the complement to the F-35. And what business case will be made is usually, it, it seems like the business case is going to be the exact opposite of the F-35, right? Instead of one aircraft to rule them all, can we get out aircraft over shorter timeframes, five to 10 years? I'm going to be interested to see how they justify the O&S costs, because I think that's going to be the one that people are going to rail at them for, oh, you're going to have higher production in O&S costs. Do they believe Roper's vision that digital engineering and these new production methods will actually drive down those back end costs? Or not You're in competition.
1: Yeah, the, fir- the first thing I would look at in this report are the assumptions, because my God, like this is going to be ripe with assumptions in terms of DOD is on the fledgling, on the edge of using digital engineering effectively. You've had a few programs like B52 and B21 who have shown the way it's not at scale. And yeah, the idea of, I keep would have to assume that we have our act together and we can do this. We can move beyond just NGAD and we can continue to to do these these upgrades the way that dr Roper envisioned it and so if that's an assumption then i think some of the other stuff falls into place but if you make an assumption that maybe because of training and you know production issues and all the stuff that typically goes with deploying a new fighter they make assumptions that dod won't be quite as efficient as we envision then you can see that business case being quite different so yeah i think that's the first page i'm going to go to in that business case go <laughs> over the assumptions of it.
0: that's the thing man If you're going to make an advance, it has to be in anticipation because if it was a clear cut and existed in the world or something like that, then we would already have been doing it or we already see it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And that's actually going to be an interesting one. I wonder what the the Kendall Hunter brain trust will think of that one because they're going to be handed an interesting portfolio from the Roper years.
1: And, and, and they're also inheriting a lot of like, Dr. Roper was not shy in issuing memos and guidance and things like that on how to do acquisition, uh, bending the spoon. And you know, that, all that stuff was just like one piece of it. There were other memos that went out. And so it'll be interesting to see is, does all that guidance stay in place? Or does it get modified? Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That'll be one to watch.
0: All right, next one we got. How DOD plans to approach cloud differently outside the U.S. from FedScoop. The harsh environments in the military often operates in presents a range of challenges for the computers that often need to be carefully controlled setups. One solution the DOD says is pursuing is less power-hungry machines. The rapid pace of advances in mobile compute cloud computing capabilities creates a belief that mobile cloud could be managed like any other set of forward-deployed resources, such as planes, ships, or infantry battalion. So here's the DOD still trying to figure out how to use cloud, because it has its own unique military use case. We often like to think everything's pretty straight up dual use, but not in all circumstances. And then so it looks like we need to do cloud compute at the mission site, and then Compute at the edge as well, like on the machines, which is a separate concept, but interrelated here, because they're going to need to be able to share data back and forth. And it's I'm glad they're looking at it. We'll see what happens. And I assume this is going to be part of that larger cloud strategy that replaces Jedi.
1: Yeah. And it strikes me that this is not as much of a, yeah, maybe there is some technical uh, considerations here if the pipe that you're operating on is, is constrained. And so you can't, you know, you can't have. You got to watch your data rates or how you, how you consume information in a way that your infrastructure can handle it. So you're not just, you're not trying to like do, uh, you know, genomic sequencing or something on your laptop or something. But I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of this, when I was reading through it, a lot of it has more to do maybe with security than a lot of other limitations. And if they can solve that, the zero trust architecture, and they can show that they can keep it secure, even while it's outside the U.S. kind of boundary which is artificial to me, honestly, personally. But yeah, if they, if they can show the authorities that they can you know, keep this secure and have these servers out in places beyond beyond just the U.S. borders, then maybe this becomes less of an issue. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You can see nodes, right, like in allied countries and different places where you maybe not quite at the edge, but you're closer to the edge and the, the access is easier and the, the bandwidth is improved or stuff like that yeah i don't know so this, this would be interesting to, to see I, I don't fully understand the challenges to be honest
0: yeah that is a good point i like to understand it does seem like a bandwidth and networking issue as well but maybe it's also it's got to be the main issue but but also it would seem resilient to have such a, a capability because it's like if you just have server farms out in northern virginia those things can be easily attacked right yeah yeah good point yes yeah, so the next one we got ryan the wave defense revenue rise despite a, despite a dark 2020 from Defense News. Defense revenues recorded in this year, Defense News Top 100 list totaled $551 billion, up about 5% from $524 billion in fiscal year 2019, recorded in last year's list. Lockheed Martin topped the list for the 22nd year in a row with defense revenues that represent about 11% of the total. Its defense revenues jumped 11% between FY19 and 20, from 56.6 billion to 62.6 billion. The newly formed Raytheon Technologies trails at number two with 42 billion in defense revenues for FY20, and Boeing, which was caught in the commercial da- commercial side downdraft, recorded a 6% drop in defense revenues for the list, which combines several segments. But even, I guess, Boeing got a double whammy, everyone else got more money out of defense, and then Boeing gets less. And then there's also the commercial impact as well. And other issues. Yeah, government has been doing I guess this is like the report card for defense pricing and contracting, which memo Palooza, which was trying to like move money to defense contractors um, in any way they could. That made sense. And it seemed to work out people. We still hear a little bit about like defense delays in terms of programs from coronavirus, but for the most part, it seems like the companies have done fine. Most of the programs weren't totally impacted and things are rolling along.
1: Yeah. I think Bill, our friend Bill Greenwald, they figured out how to keep even with the COVID and social distancing and everything. They they were able to keep production lines and all the EMD programs. They were able to keep all that going. Or even remotely. There were probably some classified programs that maybe got more impact because maybe people could not operate in close spaces like they needed to. But, but yeah, on the whole, with the cash flow, I think DOD was, I think you have to give a lot of credit to Ellen Lord and, and that whole shop because they really did step out and made sure the cash flow was there so they keep the suppliers because we, we're focusing a lot here on amount of money that these primes got, but it wasn't about the primes. They were just at the top of the food chain. It was all about the, it was about the algae at the bottom, like these small one-off vendors that were providing this one part. And if they lost that contract, they probably would have gone out of business. So keeping all of those, all all those like sub-tier vendors afloat, I think you have to give a lot of credit to the NAS shop and and also to the primes to some extent that they were, that they, they flowed that down rapidly didn't didn't allow their supply chains to become too broken. Yeah, overall a good story. Next
0: one we got, CMMC assessments requirements could be changing, potentially raising costs for some from FedScoop. Two people directly familiar with the process described it as DOD throwing out ideas without fully thinking it through the effects, adding that final requirements have not been published because DOD continues to add to them. Under the changes for an assessment at level three, Certified third-party assessor organizations, three, C3PAOs, would need to hire four full-time provisional advi- assessors. It was previously understood that these authorized assessor assessment companies would only need to hire one assessor and three registered practitioners, enter, entry-level assessors that do not meet the standards needed to become an assessor to conduct a level three assessment. So there was a little bit of uh, shade being thrown on CMM. See, But the the real news under this one was that the the need to have four full-time assessors who are, it looks like, at least provisional as opposed to fully uh, met the standards. I'm not really sure what the provisional meant there. But in any case, it's more than just having one guy and, (laughs) and three registered practitioners at a much lower level. So that's just going to higher the cost overall. But not only that, what seems to be the most ridiculous thing is like, where are you going to find these people? Like, you're, there's, you're gonna have to start with entry level people to get up to a higher level at some point, I don't think the number of cybersecurity people that can just hit the street and help out these 300,000, you know, companies in the defense industrial base are just sitting on the sidelines waiting seems like a weird move. in in, in my view.
1: Yeah, I was hoping, I, and I, I thought my intel was telling me that this was actually going to be, there would be some improvements coming down. So this surprised me. I hope it's wrong. I hope this information isn't right. Because yeah, we're starting to sound a little bit like the Soviet Union and the political commissars used to have monitor your monitor your company operations, make sure you <laughs> we need to address cybersecurity. There's no doubt about it. The NIST standards get after some of the real threats. But this idea of just like, all these assessors standing around watching, watching the processes and making sure you're complying with the the checklist. Man, I really hope we're going to be smarter than that. So yeah, look forward to seeing, look forward to seeing the final details. Hopefully, this is just scuttlebutt that's not quite accurate.
0: Yeah, there there might have been some cl- complaints about the I guess level of expertise for assessing our equipment. Like we're the experts, and you're going to have someone come in. We need more expertise if you're going to let them do it. But I wonder, going back to the chaos engineering wouldn't a much better way have just been to have an organic kind of surveillance methodology where you're just paying companies to basically attack people and see what they can do and do like a chaos engineering within the defense industrial base to test out people's cybersecurity. And then you can have bounties or rewards or whatever, like if they make a successful attacks, or would that be too disruptive, too crazy? I don't know. It'd be interesting.
1: Yeah, I think you're, you're right. The bounties are more for the zero day stuff that uh, like there's, that there's no way DoD would be able to get ahead of. But I think it is true. If you talk to cybersecurity accreditors now, the, the thing that they want to see most is you can have a lot of automated tools, which are very effective, but effective to a point like the things you really want, are you want you want the white hat hackers to go in and to try different things on your system and say, what if I do this? What if I do, I know these different exploits. Let me try some different things in the toolbox. Let me try some things that maybe aren't, aren't like public knowledge, things I just learned recently or something. So I don't think you can substitute for that, that, that human in the loop that does this, does this as their day-to-day thing and is a a trusted hacker. So yeah, if it was me, I'd put all this money instead of throwing it at these assessors, which you have to have some things. You do have to have password, password management, there are some processes that you have to have in place, but if you really want to see if someone's secure, what, you know, how exposed are they? There's different tools I can show how exposed they are in terms of vulnerabilities. And then also just put a lot of money into, like you said, pay hackers to, hey, you go out and try to hack on all, hack all of our defense companies. Don't send that information to the public, but send it to this secure place and, and let us know, and then we'll go fix those things. So I'd love to see something a little bit more innovative than that versus like just armies of assessors just sitting around watching processes. I oh, It just pains me.
0: And and the, the added benefit is you, you have trained hackers that can just be turned on an adversary when you need it. It's almost a mobilization reserve <laughs> that you wouldn't have otherwise.
1: That's true. They probably learned stuff as we're doing the hacking. So yeah, maybe you're building up your offensive force too. Yeah.
0: The next one, US Army triggers competition for future long-range assault aircraft from defense news. The army will choose a winner after a face-off between Textron's Bell and Sikorsky Boeing's team in the third quarter of fiscal year 2022. The Army plans to equip the first unit with FLORA in FY30. I think I said that FLORA. And uh, the House Appropriations Committee was the first out the gate to issue the FY22 spending bill at the end of June and would likely add an additional $388 million for both the future vertical lift programs. So that includes the future reconnaissance aircraft, the FARA, Interesting news here, they're moving forward and they're actually putting a little bit of additional money into the R&D budget of the Army, which has been coming down in recent times. Some people have been questioning these future vertical lift programs in like a Pacific fight, but Army seems to be on board completely. And it seems like uh, at least the House Appropriations is as well. So everything's moving along.
1: Yeah, I, I would love, I know we're still making strides in some of these things, but I would love to see like the combination of digital engineering, 3D printing, just uh, yeah, fast. You processing. think so?
0: You you oh. want to go that? Because actually, I was thinking like the first unit of Flora in uh, FY30. That's a long way away. <laughs> I guess we're approaching 22, but still, I was like, couldn't we start like equipping earlier and start incrementally adding? Because a lot, like at least for Textron and, and the Sikorsky Boeing team, on the tilt rotor and then the coaxial designs, those like they're flying things right now.
1: That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm like, I'm saying like, isn't there a way I'd love to see, let's pull all those innovative things that are being proven out and let's use those to keep both of these vendors. I'd love to, I'd love to keep both of these vendors and say, let's continue to advance like those things. Okay. Let's do the digital prototypes, the virtual prototypes. So they got that in place. Let's build on that and actually do the real prototypes in 24 and then let's be smart about how we manufacture these things. Let's maximize 3d printing let's, and then keep the competition. So it's not just one of these things where like we either hand it to Bell or we hand it to Sikorsky and then we're stuck with them forever. let let make these guys use the use these new innovations to, like you said, continually iterate, improve it over time. And then you can compete each lot and say, okay, who, who brings the next best upgrades uh, we'll buy them in lots of a hundred. If you lose, you only get 30. If you win, you get 70. I, I would just love to. I'd love to keep both these guys on board. And I fear that the Army will just, will go all this really smart stuff, virtual prototyping. We'll down select in 24. And then Bell goes off and, or Sikorsky goes off, whoever loses. And they just drop out of the business. And and then it's just the one vendor again, like F-35. So I don't know. I'd love to. I'd love to see that kind of approach if they could work it out.
0: I hear you, but it's also, you got two, one, the coaxial, and then the kind of high-risk tilt rotor. I'm just wondering if that's something you might want to <laughs> trade off completely and just be like, my Blackhawks and others are are fulfill the need. That we, uh, you know. Don't, don't go tilt
1: rotor at all. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Either way, we'll see what happens there. I'm moving right along, back to the U.S. Navy Pentagon to test large unmanned ships as program winds down from Defense News. Since late 2019, the SCO, the special... Uh, <laughs> Remind me what the S in in SCO is? It's uh, strategic Strategic. capabilities. I always want to say special, but I'm like, I know that's not right. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. So the SCO, uh, and that's a DOD organization, and the Navy have been working to learn from testing with their efforts culminating in October 2020's transit of Overlord Ship Ranger across the Panama Canal. The first time any unmanned ship has crossed the locks of the canal and the subsequent second canal crossing last month of the second Ghost Fleet ship Nomad. Small said that by the end of fiscal year 2022, the SCO will have turned over the original two overlord ships to the Navy and the second pair, which are in construction now and remain on schedule for an on delivery time, will have completed acceptance trials. To be delivered to the surface development squadron one that's overseeing the usv testing and fleet integration so we talked about the surface development squadron one in the past and maybe has been doing a lot of great tests and i guess they're moving quite along and this should be they say okay we got two we've done some testing we got two two more in construction and they're on for an on-time delivery and these are the large unmanned ships right these aren't like these kind of like little yacht things So they they can potentially have some real capability on board. And uh, I think hopefully this buys a little bit of confidence from Congress because that USV budget got slashed hard last year, right? From like 400 to 200, something like that. It was a pretty big drop. Hopefully it looks like they're doing good things and to where confidence is built, give them some money.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things why maybe they can't scale to the way they want is that I think there's a... The, ar- the Navy is starting to look at it as this is another armed asset that they could put put some missiles and other things, load up different things on it. Whereas I think initially there was an the idea that it could be used for logistics and maybe you could use them as like comm relays and maybe for sensors to like sense different different enemy ships in the area or something. But yeah, I, I, think, I think Congress is still, it sounded like from the article, still pretty skeptical about any kind of arming. I, I was talking to somebody recently that's in the know about... Using these in any kind of like any close to enemy territory, there's still consternation about that, about how it would be perceived. Could you escalate a war because you have some unmanned ship navigating in, in waters where you have some other vessels and you don't have people that you could talk to like you would with a manned ship? So I don't know. I think there are some the Navy has to work out, I think it's con ops about what's the roadmap for deploying these. Maybe you start with the logistics, you start with the sensors and con packages. And then, or maybe even do a teaming where you have a couple unmanned with a manned ship. And then eventually you start to build up the confidence like the army's doing with their combat vehicles, remote combat vehicles to, to show, okay, okay, man, maybe we eventually can arm these things. We can trust them. We can trust the AI, the autonomy enough that it's not going to take out a, a civilian population or take out our friendly ship or something. So, yeah. So maybe there's this. Well, error. my
0: understanding is that the Navy hasn't actually tried to weaponize any of these yet and nor did would congress allow them to at this point so i think it is mostly like sensors and like strategic like relaying targeting information or otherwise back to a shooter for now But Um, like the
1: the article said, though, that the Navy has previously said it wants its large USVs to launch missiles and other weapons.
0: Yeah, they want. want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they want. And that's why you you have a a big uh, form factor where you can stick that stuff first things first. And and that's also why it confused me. It's did they need, I guess they probably need to train the AI steering it and everything with its own data at that scale. So maybe it wouldn't be as transferable if you just had a small USV. And You train that, and then you try to like transfer a lot of that integration knowledge to a larger vessel. So maybe that's why the Na- I don't understand it, but maybe the Navy's going after all these ra- these like classes up and down at- simultaneously for that reason.
1: Well, what do they what do they have? Whenever you whenever they have a ship, it's like there's different sea states. You can see like the autonomy being correlated to some kind of sea state maybe you can do sea state three but sea state four is the autonomy is not smart enough to be able to handle 25 foot 55 50 foot waves or something so yeah maybe i don't know i'd be curious to know how they gauge like when it's ready for the open water is it like ability to navigate appropriately given all the like issues that you've run into the drift and everything or is it more about its ability to handle rough seas or yeah,
0: no, it- that's true. You're going to have the endurance and the ability to get out. Yeah. So well, I'm sure that's something we'll be talking about in the future. Something that keeps keep coming around, but here's like an old information, but an interesting one, how cheap Swedish submarine rang, ran rings around the U S aircraft carrier and sub hunting escorts from business insider. So I'm not going to read this all out, but HSMS from uh, Sweden, Scotland, which is a small diesel powered submarine displacing 1600 tons was able to make multiple attack runs on the Reagan, a U.S. aircraft carrier. And this was probably about a dozen or two dozen years ago. They've been running around with it for a while, and it caused the Navy to actually rent them out for a little bit and do their own experiments. But the 200-foot-long Swedish Gotland-class submarines introduced in '96, were first to employ the air-independent propulsion system, in this case this the Stirling engine, a Stirling engine, charges a submarine's 75-kilowatt battery using liquid oxygen. So this is uh, what allows the Gotland to run more quiet than even a nuclear-powered submarine could, which has these noise-producing coolant pumps in the reactors. And interestingly enough, China has two types of diesel submarines using the Sterling engines, and 15 of these are the type 039A Yuan class that have been built in four variants, and there's uh, 20 more minutes. Already planned for construction. So that's disconcerting to an extent. (laughs) And I've always had this worry myself about the US hasn't been pursuing and has this stance of just no diesel class type submarines. And I I get it. You get the performance and the endurance and all that kind of stuff out of the nuclear, but sometimes it's good to hedge your bets and have a couple things going. But maybe we can just buy those straight up from uh, our allies, right? Like Germany, I think, and France also have been pursuing this type this class of submarines. That's a good strategic way. If we don't need them, our allies got them. And if we needed them, we could we could tap them for it. And, and we should really focus on the nuclear capability. And that's comparative advantage economics 101.
1: Yeah. I, I have to imagine too that like our sonar systems on some of the, the amount of tech the amount of money that that we spend on our submarines and stuff that that we probably have upgraded our sonar technology to be able to detect some of these better than maybe we did back when this exercise was done I did read though that like the, the Swedish sub it also wasn't just the engine they also had 27 yeah. electromagnets to counteract the magnetic signature had sonar resistant coatings radar absorbent coatings
0: yeah but that's a that's yeah. exactly the point right like the yeah, US exactly. might have better sonar tech but there's all sorts of things it's a cat-and-mouse game there true
1: yeah no, you're right <laughs> so I don't know hopefully we've hopefully we've we've gotten where we can at least detect them at a certain range but it seemed like the one the major downside for the us was that why this wouldn't be probably probably made sense is i mean we could buy some and operate them just around japan or something but we need to cross the pacific and so you would it would be you'd have to do refueling as you go across the pacific in order to keep these subs fueled and that would identify where your subs are at <laughs> so yeah it seems like nuclear still has still is the name of the game so it might be a while before we move back into diesels
0: so china is always doing interesting stuff it's not safe for subs in the water china develops military shark drone from dj china has developed a two meter long military shark drone for development and in intelligence gathering and anti-sub warfare activity. The craft is outfitted with a bionic tail section that can whip it to a maximum speed of 10 knots. So not very fast at all. (laughs) That form of locomotion, meanwhile, also reduces battery drain compared to conventional underwater motors for longer missions. So here's another, you know, I can't help like when, when I think about like the World War II, all the interesting random options that were always being like under development, despite the fact you're in a war, you need to build a bunch of stuff in nutrition style, but China seems to have all these these different types of interesting little options here. Again, we talked about one last week, remember, uh, where they had an unmanned sub hunting craft, but here's another one. They don't appear to have a lot of the the capabilities that might be necessary to take down, for example, a Virginia class, but it's interesting to think about what they do have.
1: Yeah. It also shows yeah, I think you're right. It also shows the, the benefits of operating, like a lot of this technology is around defending your home turf. I, I think about like an alter, a similar scenario would be is if the U.S. was trying to defend San Francisco Bay or something, or the Northern Pacific off our coast, like we would probably do a lot more stuff like this too, where, yeah, just throw like thousands of cheap drones out there that can detect detect us or detect a ship. Maybe they could do mini, to some mini torpedoes or do some kind of damage. So this kind of stuff makes a lot of sense. I think what will be interesting is if China, I think you and I were, were chatting about the, uh, if the, Ch- if Ch- the Chinese, Chinese Navy is actually going to, the PLN is going to become a global force. Will this stuff still get the same play as they as they move out beyond their borders? But yeah, when they're still, when they're operating in the South China Sea and the Yellow Sea and everything, and they're just trying to come up with these things that can protect against, U.S. intrusion, this kind of stuff just makes a ton of sense. So, yeah, you don't need to have long range. You don't have to have duration, reliability, all that stuff. You don't care about that stuff.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting, though. That kind of stuff will be useful in the littorals everywhere. As That's long true. as you just bring it with you, then you could have a like a bunch of attributable stuff. And, right, it doesn't matter that it only goes 10 knots. Your boat's going to come past it, and you'll be able to relay the information. So you just have a, a sea full of this stuff kind of roaming around in little wolf packs or shark packs <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> So more on the China Watch, China upgrading 5th gen fighter capabilities, National Defense Magazine. This one was mostly about the J-20, which was interesting, but the PLAAF is uh, preparing upgrades for the j which may include increased number of air-to-air missiles the fighter can carry in its low observable configuration, installing thrust vectoring engine nozzles, and adding supercruise capability by adding installing a higher thrust indigenous WS-15 engines. That would be like actually, that's a lot of stuff, right? If you're getting supercruise, like what the F-22 has that, and nothing else. So, that I know of, does something else have supercruise besides the F-22?
1: Some of the Russian jets, I think the uh, Sukhoi was uh, a 37 or something.
0: The, but the better that the fact that they're able to do this with an indigenous engine, and we know Russia's had struggled to build their own engines, and a low com- observable configuration of the J-1020, which didn't seem very low observable when it started coming out. About ten or a little bit more years ago. So, do you think they're adding low observability, or do you have? Can do you really just have to start fresh from it, or, or did they start fresh? They're only
1: building like small numbers of these. They were only they're only like handfuls. I don't know what do they have. I think they maybe have thirty or something, or maybe only twenty of these. So, I think they're doing their production builds, and each production build they're making it. Pr- so, it does sound like they they realize that the the canards were not actually designed right for uh, low observability. So they've done some upgrades. So they're definitely like iterating, I think on the J20, but I'm still, I'm still bearish on the whole thing. I, I, in a way, I think that China's maybe putting a lot of resources in something where they might be able to solve this problem in a much more cost-effective way. And maybe they're just modeling themselves on the U.S. a little bit, because honestly, if you're going to have a ton of F-35s, F-22s come jamming down your coast trying to send up these jays, which clearly are not going to be maneuverable in the way that you're not going to be dogfighting with them. That's definitely not their purpose. And so you, might, the, the range was going to be could be pretty close. You could be closing fast if you're sending these guys out to go hunt down F-35s and F-22s. And why not just use uh, cheap drones, cheap fast, fast things with just like one missile on them, and just send out thousands of them. F thirty five and F twenty two wouldn't be able to take them out. So I kind of wonder if the China maybe it's good that they're putting all their energy into this uh, and not doing other things because I don't know. It seems to me like it seems to me like they're not going to be able to keep up with the F thirty five and F twenty two technology and the and GAD that's going to come out. They're always going to be playing catch up. And so maybe it's good. Maybe it's good they're wasting all their energy here.
0: Oh yeah. Much hubris. <laughs> I'm sympathetic to that, but then the way that you feel about their J20 is probably the way that they feel about our F35. But I'm looking here. Dimpat Pat, and Bill Greenwell had that nice little article where they compared F35 timelines versus the J20 and how they got first flight 2011, and then it was flown in 2016. It was already fielded 2018. They had the AL31FN engines. 2020, they got to the WS10 engines. And now it's 2021, and I guess they're moving to the WS-15 engines. At the rate that they're accelerating the capabilities out of this aircraft, maybe they might have to start fresh with the the FC-31 or something else. It's not clear to me that they won't be able to do something uh, useful with this. Yeah. All right. Enough of China Watch. Appropriators increase Air Force aircraft procurement, cut missiles and ammo for breaking defense. So they especially put $485 million for procurement for four extra C-130Js. And then they also look like the appropriators are rebuking the Air Force for lack of transparency and blood and for their budget fluidity. So to fix that, the HACD created new line items for the air launch rapid response weapon, Arrow, at $238 million, and the hypersonic attack cruise missile, which was at $190 million which got a $10 million cut. So interesting that they're going against the exact opposite direction of where we would hope they would in terms of, of uh, combine, allowing some kind of portfolio flexibility. And they did that last year, right? With the 6-3 account where they had like the Air Force proposed like five portfolios and they broke them out to 12 or more things. So I don't know. I guess this is just more of what we should expect, right?
1: Yeah, I know. It is a shame. In a way, they're very different missiles. And so I guess I'm I'm slightly sympathetic to the fact that it was probably unlikely that Arrow would scale faster than Hackam because HACM mainly in the, in the scramjet, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit you know easier challenge than the boost glide vehicles. But <clears throat> yeah, you wish, you wish this could have been a little bit of a test case for, hey, okay, if Arrow comes online fast, then maybe you shift the money towards there or... If one's under has a technical challenge and they can't use the money they you could shift it back to Arrow. But yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to turn out that way. I think the one win out of this whole thing is the fact that we didn't get, they didn't get more F-35s thrown at them than what they asked for. So I don't know, small, a small win there.
0: Yeah. First time in years that they haven't plused up the F-35 procurement request. I wonder what that does to the incentives, right? Like, now that you're budgeting for the future, man, I, I thought I could get 12 extra even for, without requesting it. And now it's, what am I going to, if they haven't they changed the paradigm?
1: They didn't put it in the UPO though. So every year, most people don't see these things, but every year when the budget goes over, the the different service chiefs will send over a letter with their unfunded priorities. And invariably they would always have extra F-35s. This year with Chief Brown, there weren't any F-35s on there. So that may have been maybe one slight difference, but yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I would love to actually be able to see the, the unfunded priorities list and maybe even compare that to what's on like the COCOM's integrated priority lists. And there's lists all over the place. <laughs> well, don't do that.
1: That'll be too different.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, USAF conducts first Warhead Arena test for the AGM-183A Arrow. So if we're just talking about the hypersonic, it looks like what what's going on here is that they're doing a detonation test to ensure that the customer's data requirements were met using the new and improved test tools, technologies, and techniques. Another test, These are this is the kind of thing that programs just need to be doing and talking about probably more often. Just like incremental tests to prove your way out as you go and build confidence along the way. Never, uh, but it's also, it seems weird when it just comes out in these little bits. So they definitely, there needs to be, I heard Brian McGrath talk about this as well. It seems that, not only should like you start celebrating every time you do tests and, and try to show more of those and incremental progress towards like even a large system of system problem here, like we have for the arrow, but is that tied to anything like a strategic communications and, and a proper narrative of how the thing fits in, or are you just blasting people with these little snippets? So anyway,
1: we were trying so. to do that with MTA. Cause if you look at it, if you look at an MTA program, middle tier of acquisition program that is trying to push the edge a little bit. Most of their events, they're not design events, they're testing events. And, and so, I, we, you know, there, there was a point where you're we trying to communicate, like every time there was a successful test, we try to communicate it, but I don't know. I think that there is a risk uh, kind of calculus with declaring all of your tests is like, if you have a bunch of successful ones, people like yawn and go, yeah, great. If you have one bad one, then everyone goes, oh my God, the program is in terrible shape and people start giving it bad attention. So I don't know. I don't know if the I don't know what the appetite is there for people to see a few bad tests and still think about that as being a good learning event versus reason to go after the program.
0: It's like trajectory to some degree, right? I think a lot of things need to move more in that direction. Back with like ballistic missile testing, it's just, okay, it it didn't explode this time. And this time went like that 50% of the range. And now I'm going to get to 75 and you're probably going to see a lot of stuff like that with especially like autonomous systems, like they're probably going to start out. At, can you do this basic waypoint navigation? And then can you do this more complicated thing? And can you go that far and um, handle this obstacle? And as long as it's like moving along on a trajectory, it should be fine. If you're just like failing your test and not delivering anything and sure it's hard, but you, you can't show any progress to something, then maybe you should be cut. I don't know. <laughs> Unless like you're a really good evangelist and you tell a really good narrative. So that the narrative gotta, also has to go along with that of the test. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: And maybe I think Elon Musk did us all a favor maybe in that regards with SpaceX and showing, okay, yeah, it blew up a couple of times and we eventually got it to work. So it was all good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that book of that one incident where the last test was about to blow up on the aircraft and the guy had to go in and and save it. So they were that close to just not even making it at all. It's kind of funny. Yeah. uh, Luckily, they did, and they they showed us the way forward. Uh, But that's all we got time for uh, this week. Matt, thanks for joining us, and and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.